Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, last week the Holy Spirit reminded us to pay attention, to pay attention to the Holy Word of God like a, a light shining in a dark place. And here we are again, ready to pay attention. And what better place than to begin at the beginning? Genesis chapter 1. Genesis, the introduction to all of the scriptures. The book of Genesis has 50 chapters. It begins with an introduction, starting in verse 1 of chapter 1 and going through to verse 3 of chapter 2. And that's the text of the sermon, which we already read together. And then there are 10 sections that follow. And each section begins with the same words in Hebrew, which usually in our Bible is translated like you see it in verse 4 of chapter 2. These are the generations. For those who are interested, the Hebrew word is toledot. And scholars spend a lot of time and ink talking about what these toledot are, what these words mean. If you look in your study Bible or commentaries, you will find different explanations. Some people say, well, they wrap up a section. Other people say they begin a section. There are lots of good arguments for the different proposals. But on the whole, I would say that the best way to understand these sections is that they begin with these words. These are the generations of. And what a Toledot does, it explains what happened. What happened with this particular person, or as is the case of chapter 2, verse 4, what happened with the heavens and the earth. So you might, for instance, have the Toledot of Jacob, and it will describe everything that happened with his sons and his descendants, the consequences of his life. Today, we begin with the introduction. And we learn in this introduction about our world, about the home that God created for us and about the God who created it. Our text begins with these words, in the beginning. And as we read through Genesis, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 11, chapter 12, we see that the Bible and that this book of Genesis presents itself not as a myth, not as an interesting story, not as a collection of fables with some kind of hidden meaning, but the scripture presents itself as a historical record with times and dates and events. And the character of the book of Genesis and also the first three and 11 chapters is radically different from all the ancient mythologies and stories of all the other civilizations in the ancient Near East. This is history. And there is not one indication anywhere from Genesis chapter 1 through to Genesis chapter 11 that at any point the Bible switches from being myth to teaching history. The entire book of Genesis is presented as historical record. It begins in the beginning 
God created. God is the subject. It's history, his story. It's the revelation of what he has done. It's the revelation of who he is. The Bible is not a therapeutic self-help book. It's not centered on you and your felt needs. And that's a good thing. Because the universe isn't about me and my felt needs. The universe is not centered on me and praise God for it because no one of us is strong enough to hold together all things. There is only one who can, in whom all things can subsist and who can hold all things together by the word of his power. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's all about him. In him all things hold together. Now, we know from the scriptures and we know from the confessions which echo the scriptures that God reveals himself in two ways. There are, there's the book of creation. There's his eternal power and divine nature, as Paul says to the Romans in chapter 1, verse 20, are clearly made manifest and perceived in the things that have been created. So every single human being on the face of the earth from all time, from the very beginning of the world to its end, can just open their eyes and look around and see that there is a God, that there is a creator, that he's eternal and almighty, and that he must be worshipped. But God also reveals himself in Scripture. And praise God for that. Because it's only in Scripture that we learn about the Lord Jesus Christ. If you open your Bibles for a moment to 2 Timothy chapter 3, the second letter of Paul to Timothy chapter 3. And we'll look at verse 15. Paul is speaking to Timothy chapter, two, uh, chapter 3 verse 15 of his second letter. He says, um, from childhood... You have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then he explains, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So it's only through the scripture that we can learn about the Lord Jesus Christ, that we can learn about Salvation from sin. And so we turn to the scriptures. Time and time and time again. Now how does this book start? The first chapter of Genesis speaks about a world, the first two chapters speak about a world of glory and life and abundance. It speaks about a world in which man is living in communion with God. It's a glorious beginning in which life is just pulsating and exploding onto the scene. And then how does it end? Well, we read the last few verses, didn't we? The same book, which begins in such a glorious way, 
ends with a lonely body in a coffin in Egypt, far away from God. So this book tells us that something went terribly wrong. And to understand how wrong things have turned, we need to understand in the first place how right things were. And that's what Genesis 1 and 2 are here for. Genesis 1 and 2 describe to us the world, that, the way that God made it. The world, the way it is supposed to be. Genesis 3 tells us about the problem of man's sin and the destruction that he brought, the, the curse that he brought on the creation. And then Genesis 3, the ending and the rest of Scripture, recounts how God works to fix and restore the creation that we broke by our sin and rebellion. So Genesis 1 through to 11 gives a cosmic universal context. And then in chapter 12, the Bible focuses in on Abraham and the people of Israel, the patriarchs and the people of Israel. And then all of Genesis gives the background for the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And that in turn gives the backdrop for the entire scriptures, the drama of redemption. And finally, we get to the last chapter, Revelation 22, and we end up where we started. You see lots of themes from Genesis 1 and 2 echoed back in the last chapters of the Bible, where God has made all things new, he's restored what we broke, and in fact, he's made it even more beautiful and more glorious, as if that was even possible. And all this, the entire scripture, is written not for our curiosity, but it is the self-revelation of God. God in all the scripture is teaching us who he is and what he has done. And so as we go through this first chapter, let's pay attention to what we learn about our God. The first thing we learn about him is that he is creator. In the beginning, God created. If you read through the Old Testament, it's remarkable how many times God insists on reminding his people and all people that he is the creator of the heavens and the earth. Isaiah chapter 48, he says, listen to me, O Jacob, I am creator. The creator of heaven and earth. And every attempt to deny the doctrine that God is the creator of heaven and earth is in fact a spiritual rebellion against God because we don't want to listen to him. So, for instance, the teaching, the false teaching about evolution. One prominent scientist, amongst many, who have said the same thing, said, finally, we have a universe in which we no longer depend upon a creator God. We are free to do what we want. And that's behind a lot of the push for embracing evolution, not just in the world, but even in the church. It's a desire to reject God's sovereign right to tell us what his will is for our world and for our lives. God is creator. Have you thought about this? Every atom 
in your body was created in this first week that's described in the book of Genesis. Every atom in the bench you're sitting in was created in that first week. God made the world you live in. God knit you together in your mother's womb. God breathed life into you by his Holy Spirit. You exist from God. You exist for God, for his glory. And if we human beings fight against that, if we try to deny that reality, then things go terribly wrong, both in our lives and in the universe. God is creator. The earth was without form and void. It sounds really neat in the Hebrew. It was tohu vavohu. The language of Genesis 1 is not poetry, but it's very exalted prose. It's beautifully put together and organized because there is no more sublime topic, or there are very few more sublime topics than the creation of all things by the power of God. So it was without form and void. The idea here is something that is a trackless expanse. There are no marks. We can imagine a blank canvas. That's kind of the idea here. The earth was just a blank canvas waiting for the divine artist to begin his work. But it wasn't a white canvas like you buy in the art store. It was a black one. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Now, when we think of darkness, we think of darkness because we're after the fall. We think of scary things and bad things. But this is before the fall. This darkness is not evil. There is no evil. We can imagine a darkened theater or concert hall just before the show begins. John Kelvin said the universe is a a theater for God's glory. The, The lights are about to come on and the show is about to begin. God is about to paint on this blank canvas with life and light and glory and the spirit is hovering there, the spirit of God, the spirit of life, the spirit of light. Jesus says in the New Testament, it is the spirit who gives life. And so we have everything just waiting in expectation here. Something is going to happen and something very good is going to happen. And what happens? Verse three, God said. God speaks. God is a creator God. God is a speaking God. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, says the psalmist. Let's turn there. Psalm 33, verse 6. Psalm 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their host, he gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the The earth fear the Lord, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. God speaks, 
and it happens. When God speaks, things happen. You know, scientists, as they study the universe, as they try to go smaller and smaller and smaller into the atom and then into the nucleus and then into the, the different particles within the nucleus of the atom, the different quarks and, and the different types of quarks and gluons and all the other things. And, and, and in the end, some scientists, they say, you know, perhaps the very, very basic element that we can't even see it so small, but perhaps the very center and essence of these tiny particles are just vibrating strings of pure energy. And there's something beautiful about that. God spoke the world into existence. At the very smallest level, there's just pulsating, vibrating energy, which makes up the reality in which we live. And God spoke and he said, let there be light. God starts painting on the canvas with light and life. And it is good. Everything he does is good. When God speaks, things happen. You know why godly parents insist on bringing their children into worship? even when they sometimes make little noises. It's because when God speaks, things happen. God calls by the power of his word. He calls into existent things that don't exist. And we love our children. And we want them to know the Lord Jesus. And we want them to have new hearts. And we want them to have that gift of God, which is faith which is worked by the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the word. And so we bring our children into the workshop of the Holy Spirit. We want them to be where God is speaking because we want things to happen by the power of the Spirit in their little hearts. That's why it's a beautiful thing to hear a child in worship. If you're a parent and your child is making a little bit of noise, don't worry about it. It's a beautiful thing and it's a good thing. God is a creator. God speaks. And God is a God of order. In verse 4, God separated the light from the darkness, called the light day, and the darkness he called night. As we go through the chapter, day by day, we see God making things and, and naming things and giving things a function and a place and everything has a place and a function in God's creation. There is light distinguished from darkness. There is heaven and earth, water and land, plants, trees, animals, all according to their kind. Seasons, days, years. There is male, there is female. There is a holy rhythm of work and rest. Everything. And everyone in this glorious, this brilliant, sophisticated creation with all its parts, massive ones, galaxies, and tiny ones, little quarks. Everything has its place and its function. God is a God of order. And because he is, 
Science has its roots in Christianity. The great scientists of the 16th and 17th and 18th centuries, they studied the universe as the very work of God. And because they believed in God, they expected to find that the universe makes sense, that there is order and that there is purpose. And this is the foundation for modern science, the foundation that our culture is doing its very level best to get rid of. But it's the foundation that Newton and others worked from. They expected to find coherence and meaning in the universe, not random chance or capricious deities. Today we live in a culture, a postmodern culture, which is doing its very, very best to deny that foundation. If you look at all the things that are going on around us in the world, we see that the devil is really enjoying his attempts to erase creational distinctions and functions, to subvert creational functions and institutions. And so what's going on in our culture with respect to gender and sex and marriage is not just a disagreement on a superficial level, but really, it is a spiritual battle. It is rebellion against God at the root. God is creator, God speaks, God is a God of order, and then God delights in unity in diversity. Now, our culture has hijacked the word diversity and made it into something that is very different In our culture, diversity means that everybody acts and thinks the same. But God created the world with a glorious unity in diversity. There are all kinds of rocks and trees and and creatures and unique human beings. And yet they're all connected. Did you know there are 300 different types of bananas? God could have just made one type. God could have just made one type of tree. Like a little child that draws a tree and they all kind of look the same. But God made so many different birds and animals and trees and bushes and flowers and fruits. And so many different human beings. Billions upon billions upon billions of possibilities in our DNA. Everyone is unique. And yet, what unites them all is that they all work together. They're all united. They all complement one another to fulfill the purpose for which they were made. And that is to glory, to glorify God. That's what it's all about. And so if we want our children to know the Lord, we need to teach them the scriptures. But you know what else? We need to get them peeled away from the screen. And we need to to get them outside. We need to get our children into his world to see his glory and to worship him. We need to teach our children not just to stop and smell the roses, but to, to examine them and to delight in the way that they are made, the textures and the colors and all the different parts that are exquisitely designed. I was watching a National Geographic TV 
presentation a number of years ago, and one of the scientists was describing how giraffes need a special type of heart because they have a very long neck, so they need a really strong pump to pump that blood all the way up there. But when the giraffe bends down to get something off the ground with his mouth, all that pressure would make his head just literally explode. So he needs a heart which adapts very quickly, depending on where his head is. And the scientist was explaining this, and then he looked at the camera and said, just amazing, incredible design. And then he got this deer-in-the-headlights look, and he said, uh, I, I, I mean evolution. The heavens declare the glories of God. The firmament declares his handiwork. We sang about that before the service. And that unity in diversity that we see in creation reflects who God is. Look at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man. We have God the Father, almighty creator of heaven and earth. We have the presence of the Holy Spirit. We have the very word of God. And it's all It's all just here in outline. We've got to fill in a lot of details yet, but it's here too in verse 26 that God is three and one, that he has lived eternally in holy communion with himself, that God did not need to create the world because he was lonely or because he was bored because God lives in fellowship with himself. But he created the world to reflect his glory. Unity in diversity. And God is almighty. As we read through this chapter, we see him creating this entire universe with its trillions upon trillions upon trillions of stars and and heavenly bodies. And all its complexity. And he does it in six days. You know... Some people have trouble with that because they say, well, science tells us that it's not possible that it happened in six days. Science is telling us something different. Well, that may be. But remember what we have to do. We've got to pay attention to the prophetic word made more sure as a lamp shining in a dark place. We need to pay attention. What is the word of God saying? You know, even the most liberal scholars, scholars that don't believe in God, they admit that if you read Genesis chapter 1, there is no question at all in the Hebrew that this chapter is teaching that God created the world in six days. That's what God says. And if anybody has a different opinion, the Bible has something to say to that. Job chapter 38, when Job is complaining about God and the way he does things, God spends a number of chapters saying, Job, where were you when I made the world? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth and the sons of the the, the, the heavenly host? The angels were singing and rejoicing and glorifying me. You weren't around, Job. But who was around? God was. And what he says is truth. God is almighty. And God is life. And God is love. Look at verse 28. God makes man in his own image. 
And he blesses them. And then he tells them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Isaiah chapter 45 says, God did not create the earth to be empty. He formed it to be inhabited. But notice what he does. When he makes the birds and the animals and the creeping things and the, and the trees and the vegetation, he just fills the whole world with this delightful abundance of life. But when he comes to man, he makes one woman and one man. Why? Why didn't he just make billions of people? Well, the Bible doesn't really tell us. We do know that God does everything for his glory. But we can look at the consequences of what God has done, and and we can derive some understanding from that. How did God purpose to fill the world with image bearers? How did God purpose to fill the world with men, women, and children that love him and that live for his glory and that delight in him? He purposed to do it with the most holy love between a man and a man. And a woman. That every child on this earth, according to God's plan, was to be the consequence and result of pure, holy love. That's a beautiful thing. God is life. God is love. And God provides Look at what God says in verse 29. Behold, they have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth to people and to animals. God gives food. And God, before he created man, makes the entire universe and makes the entire world and prepares it for life. God provides. And God is good. Seven times we read in this chapter that he made Something, and then he said it was good. And in the end, we see that he made, he looked at everything he had made, and he, behold, it was very good. God didn't create evil. God didn't create a broken world. God didn't create sin. God is good, and everything he does and everything he makes is good. Now, why did he do all this? Why did he make all this creation? As we read the chapter, everything comes to focus on that final creative act. It was all made to be a place for man to live. This whole world is a a massive cathedral. It's a theater of God's glory. And if you look at verse 14, there's something that we can't see in the English, but it's an important thing. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens. And the word used here is a word which is very special. It's a special kind of light. The same word here in verse 14 is used in other places in the Scripture to describe the lamps that would burn in the tabernacle and in the temple. And So there's a little clue in the original language about the character of this universe. It is a massive cosmic cathedral built for the glory of God. When David is out in the fields looking up into the night sky in Psalm 8, he just sings with joy. He says, Lord, when I look up at that huge, high, vaulted ceiling of the universe and I see all the stars, all the lights shining in it, it just lifts my soul and it takes away my breath. And it, it, I just think, what is man 
that you are mindful of him. I'm just so small. And yet God takes small little men and women, little earthlings taken from the dust of the earth, and he places them in this cosmic temple as his image. God made man and woman, male and female, in the image of God. He created them. What does that mean? Well, if you have a a mighty emperor, a mighty king, and he sets up a, a statue of himself, that statue has a message for everyone. As you walk by the statue, you look and you say, wow, look at that big, amazing, beautifully done, expensive statue. It must represent a glorious king, a glorious emperor. And so we, human beings, we are living reflections of the glory and the righteousness and the holiness of God. It's amazing. We're just earth people made from mud. And yet we are crowned, says David in Psalm 8, crowned with glory and honor and dominion. Now the church confesses every Sunday, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Do you think the church just made that up? Do you think some theologians got together in a room and sucked their thumbs and said, let's let's say this about God? No. The church reads the Bible. And like a little child lisping back to the Father what he has in the first place taught us, we repeat back to him what he teaches us. And God presents himself in the scripture from Genesis chapter 1 on as God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. This home that God created for us proclaims his goodness, his love, his power, and his glory. But what do we see when we look around us? What do we experience in our daily lives, do we see only life and, and light and goodness and glory? Or do we see suffering and pain and death and darkness and evil and shame and misery and betrayal and brokenness? We see those things too, don't we? So Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2 are the cosmic background to the drama of redemption which the entire scriptures lays out before us. Genesis 1 and chapter 2, uh, Genesis chapters 1 and 2 says, this is where you come from. This is how things were made to be. But something very, very wrong happened. And the way back home is a long, hard road. And so Genesis ends with a dead body in a coffin. In the land of pagans far away from God. But then when we get to the end of Deuteronomy, the end of the Pentateuch, things are already changing. The people of God are about to enter the promised land. They've come out of Egypt. They're going to go into a holy land where God and his people will dwell together. It's a foretaste of heaven. It's just a pale reflection of the glory and the holiness of creation at the start. But it's a beginning. As we trace through the revelation and the history of redemption, we more and more see coming into focus the one through whom all things were made. 
the word that was with God in the beginning and that is God. The light that shone in the darkness. The word who came and tabernacled, who dwelt with us. The word of God incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ who moved things forward. And who set the stage for the day when God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, will say, behold, I have made all things new. That is what Christ is doing right now on the throne of the universe. He is moving history forward to the day when we will once again see and live in a perfect world. All of creation perfectly worshiping God in unspeakable joy. Every part, every creature, everything in its place and according to its function. God says to you in chapter, Genesis chapter 1, he says, this is where you come from. And the rest of scriptures say, and that is where you're headed. No matter what it takes, no matter how terrible the price, I am making things right again. I am bringing you home. Amen.